Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. The Storyteller by Saki, also known as H.H. Monroe. First published in Beasts and Super Beasts, a collection of Saki stories called, uh, from 1914. You uh, had read this one before, Eric? Again, um, you have asked me to read a story that, if I remembered it, it was so far in my youth that it has slipped away. I can't say no because it resonated so well, but mm-hmm. I can't say yes. I I found that some of my students had read it before, which really annoyed me because I thought, oh, I'm going to give them a real treat and they'll be so happy with it. But you know what? They were happy with it, even though it was a reread for a couple of them. I, I think this story is used in school now, which uh, is surprising to me because... I think it has a moral that um, <laughs> that the school systems tend not to like. So tell us the story and the moral that you feel is projected by it. Sure. Um, there is an ant with three uh, charges, uh, a small girl, a smaller girl, and a small boy. Um, and there is a bachelor all in a train compartment on a journey that will take about an hour. The children are acting crazily. The ant is attempting to control them and failing miserably. The bachelor um, isn't going to put up with it much longer. And so the ant decides to tell a story to the children. It is a terrible story. (laughs) Um, in fact, I think I should. By terrible, you you don't mean that it's full of terror. I mean, it's a really it's crappy story. A crappy story, yes. An incredibly crappy story. And um, the narrator of of the story, whoever that is, maybe it's Saki, um, tell, tells us the story as well. And I will just read that section. I think it's hilarious. In a low, confidential voice, interrupted at frequent intervals by loud, petulant questionings from her listeners, she, that is the aunt, began an unenterprising and deplorably uninteresting story about a little girl who was good and made friends with everyone on account of her goodness and was finally saved from a mad bull by a number of rescuers who admired her moral character. (laughs) And then immediately one of the children asks, wouldn't they have saved her if she had been good? If she had been good, <laughs> and this is the the bigger of the small girls. And then it, somebody asks, it was or somebody says it was exactly the question that the bachelor had wanted to ask. And then the aunt says, "Well, yes," admitted the aunt lamely, but I didn't think they would have run quite so fast to help her if they had not liked her so much. <laughs> right. The children judge this to be the stupidest story they have ever heard, as does the bachelor, who then goes on to essentially rework the ant's story, taking on taking in all of her premises, but adding brilliant details and a completely inverted ending, which um, concludes with the ant being upset 
and the train stopping at its destination. I, I, I just love to read this story. <laughs> it's so funny because it's about storytelling. It's about itself in many ways. And we don't even know most of the characters' names. We learn one of them is one of the boy. The boy is named Cyril. He's the only uh, character on the train with a name. Bertha, we know a lot more about. She's the um, little girl in this, the Bachelor story. And so when thinking about this story and having my students think about this story, I ask them, how many characters are in this story? <laughs> and it gets us to thinking about uh, how this story is put together and why it's so great, why it makes us enjoy it so much. Um, that's not – I think this, the construction of the story, the structure of it is really a very important. Um, but I, you left off the, the very end. The last paragraph mm-hmm. in which uh, the bachelor gets off the train, collects his things and says to himself, unhappy woman. For the next six months or so, those children will assail her in public with demands for an improper story. That is what the ju- the aunt judged of her story, of his story, saying that it was improper and that it would undermine the effect of years of careful teaching. Right. So in in the story that the aunt tells, um, the main character, the little girl, um, is so good that people want to help her. But as the her listening charges say, uh, wouldn't they have helped her anyway? Um, in the bachelor story, she's also Bertha is also very good. In fact, she's so good that she's gotten three different medals for goodness, and she's the only child in the entire village that is so good that she has three medals and she wears them proudly around her neck so that when she walks, they clink together. The prince is so impressed by her goodness that he gives her the right to walk in his park one week of the year where no other children are ever allowed. So we're, we're in a fairy tale world here because it's called park, but it also in fact means a a preserve in which the prince can go hunting for his sport, for his amusement. So there's there are animals running around in here. Um, in fact, Bertha is in Bertha encounters a wolf. Um, gosh, it's a fairy tale. Bertha encounters a wolf, and what she does is um, run into a or jump into a stand of mulberry bushes. The, the sm- uh, sorry, myrtle bushes. The, uh, the smell of the myrtle is so strong that the wolf can't quite find her. And uh, she thinks that she's going to be fine. But then when she moves, the clinking of the metals let the wolf know exactly where she is. And he eats her. Right. So that's why it's a very improper story, because instead of having the moral that you are saved from the wolves because the whole world recognizes that you're good. In fact, it says when you're out there all alone, it doesn't matter how good you are. If you're so proud that you think that your goodness will save you, guess what? The wolves are going to get you. Um, So the storyteller and maybe Saki, uh, the storyteller tells us the same story, as you say, a variation one on the other. But I think there's even a lot more going on here because Mm -hmm. there's something strange about the the authority of um, of children. It's not the king who allows 
Bertha to walk in the park one week out of the year. It's the prince. So he's a youngster in some sense. Um, he may be an old prince, but but he's still he's just the prince. He's not the king yet. And he makes that decision. And unlike the fairy tale, he doesn't marry her. He just lets her come for one week out of the year to walk in the park. The aunt, we are told in the story, belonged to the three children. Yeah, that's stunning. I would have thought that the children belonged to the aunt. So who is this woman who is charged with bringing these kids to Templecombe, which is the little village they're headed toward? Um, well, I'm guessing if an aunt is taking care of three children, she's an unmarried sister mm-hmm. of someone else who has children. Um, the, the man in the carriage who is discomforted by uh, the unruly children and who seems at least to be quite happy to delight them and discomfort um, their guardian, uh, the, the aunt, is called only a bachelor. So we have these two unmarried people, one of which can't control children and the other of which is teaching them bad things. Mm-hmm. All right, their relation to children, not so good. Now, how does Bertha manage to apparently save herself? She jumps into the stand of myrtle bushes. Guess what? Myrtle is a symbol for marriage. Mm. And if she had just shut up, stood still, and remained married, she'd have been okay. (laughs) But nope, she's got to get up, be so darn good, and her medals clink together. And the wolf, we know what wolves are, predatory sexual creatures, as in wolf whistles, um, the wolf gets her. So there's something going on here about Edwardian culture, about what it's like to uh, to be in a family, to be associated with someone else or not associated. Family roles, as presented in this story, are uh, really there's no love here. Mm-hmm. These are necessary occupations. And if they interfere with one's pleasure, um, you can be disgruntled because you are failing in gaining your livelihood by being a supportable member of the family, as the ant was. Or you can be annoyed that your perfectly good ticket isn't buying you the tranquility to read on the train as you go back toward the temple. Um, Family life does not work out well here. And I recall you telling me that... uh, that Saki was a homosexual. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may be that it's not just a critique of um, Victorian, Edwardian, uh, and Georgian values that are going on here, but actually quite specifically whether or not those values encourage the possibility of genuine human emotional connection and mutual commitment. Um, It's a funny story in which nobody wins. The innocent children realize that the other man's grass is not greener. Why should it be greener? Uh, Cyril asks when the ant explains why the cows are moving from one field to the other as they pass by. Why should it be any greener? Um, 
And he's right, you know, because Cyril uh, comes from Greek and it means Lord. Mm. Right. As in those, uh, I don't know, I, I used to go to a monastery sometimes for uh, contemplative weekends. It was just wonderful. And I loved hearing the monks sing those Kyrie's, Kyrie eleison. There are many, many different uh, Gregorian chants that have those two Greek words. It's Lord have mercy. Kyrie eleison, Christ eleison, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. That Kyrie, that becomes Cyril. Mm. So the one name character here is the Lord. The boy is right. I, I love the the fact that you're you talk about judgment. I think judgment in this story is so much uh, is so important to it. When the children finish listening to that crappy story that the <laughs> the aunt is given, um, they ask their questions. You know, does your story really have any logic to it? And then one of the the bigger of the small girls says with immense conviction, "It is the stupidest story I have ever heard." <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Cyril says, I didn't listen after the first bit. It was so stupid. <laughs> and then the smaller of the of the the smaller girl doesn't even comment. She just continues repeating the first line of a song that she doesn't know the rest of the lyrics to over and over. She's the bachelor or someone imagines that she she had been bet two thousand she could say it two thousand times in a row. And was happily doing so, right? They completely ignore her feelings as to whether she is a good storyteller. The Bachelor then says, you don't seem to be a success of a storyteller. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, at which point, the aunt challenges him. Well, if you think you're so smart, why don't you tell them a story? Which he does. Um, he takes her exact premises and reworks them into a wonderful story that entertains the children. And... The children then have judgment about that. It, it's so it's such a great symmetry, um, and this is how they respond. Yeah. The smaller of the small girl says, "The story began badly, but it had a beautiful ending." <laughs> the bigger of the small girls, with immense decision, says, "It is the most beautiful story that I have ever heard." And then Cyril says. It is the only beautiful story I have ever heard. And then a dissentient opinion comes from the ant. <laughs> a most improper story to tell young children. Um, you have undermined the effect of carefully. Right. Um, <laughs> right. But then I think the funniest line for me is this one. The response by the bachelor. At any rate, said the bachelor, collecting his belongings preparatory to leaving the carriage, I have kept them quiet for ten minutes, which was more than you were able to do. <laughs> that was the point of his story, yeah. is to not have the children, you know, racing around the cabin, interfering with his enjoyment of his newspaper or whatever it happened to be. So the storyteller is a story with these stories in it. Mm -hmm. And The Bachelor is a storyteller who has, as you say, his point is to keep the children quiet. But his point is also um, to um, discomfort the aunt, to show her up mm -hmm. uh, as being a worse storyteller. And the aunt's point in telling the story is to impress morals, good morals on the children, as well as 
quieting them because, after all, they are disturbing this other man, the bachelor, in the compartment. There are lots of reasons to tell stories. One of Saki's reasons to tell stories is to amuse us and to make us realize that stories have lots of real functions and that there are legitimate reasons to judge them good or bad depending upon the uses to which we want to put them. There's a very um, rich set of possibilities here. There's one, I think, that one might miss, but um, because my father, may he rest in peace, liked to uh, recite poetry from the books of knowledge uh, at the dinner table and sometimes break into song, I happen to know the road to Mandalay. (laughs) And I think that most people of this period would have known, and I think there's something wrong here that is worth recognizing. The smaller girl created a diversion beginning to recite on the road to Mandalay. She only knew the first line, but she put her limited knowledge to the fullest possible use. And then you've reminded us, uh, Jesse, that um, she just kept going over and over and over again. And probably somebody, The Bachelor thinks, had challenged her to do it at least 2000 times. And she was going to win that challenge. It turns out that, uh, at least from my recollection and myself as a child, my father trying to sing it, it went something like this. On the road to Mandalay, where the flying fishes play, and the dawn comes up like thunder out of China across the bay. Okay, so that's the beginning of it. It's pretty darn famous, and it's you know, it, it pulls you along on the road to Mandalay where the flying fishes play. Well, you know, there is such a thing as flying fish, but that's a fairy tale kind of idea, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. fish got to swim. Birds got to fly. Right. So I can easily imagine that the little girl is singing just those very lines, the ones that are that are part of the verse uh, that gets repeated in that song. And that I learned as a child from my father bellowing, uh, you know, at the dinner table. Um The thing is that that song, it actually isn't called On the Road to Mandalay. (laughs) It's actually called Mandalay. And it's written by Rudyard Kipling, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1907, which is shortly before the the publication of this story. Mm -hmm. And here's how it really begins. This is the real first line. By the old Mulmine pagoda, looking eastward to the sea, there's a Burma girl a settin', and I know she thinks of me. It seems unlikely that that's the line the little girl is saying over and over again. Absolutely. But in fact, if you read the whole story, Mandalay, I mean, read the whole poem by Kipling, it's a story about wanting to get back to this perfect love. It's a love story. It's about marriage and romance. It's about exactly the things that are excluded in this story Mm. in the lives of the aunt and the bachelor. And so this little girl, I don't think she is, in fact, giving us the first line of this incredibly famous poet's incredibly famous poem. I think she's giving us the popular music hall line that everybody knows because the music is great and flying fishes are an attractive image to a little child trying to think of fairy tale kinds of things. 
So even one of the great writers of the period, who I realize is subject to lots and lots of criticism because of his racism and imperialism, but nonetheless, in England at the time, thought of as a spectacularly important writer, winner of the Nobel Prize, um, she's not doing that. She's not following up what he actually was talking about. She's giving a child's version of this, which is cut off from romance, really caring about other people, really going anywhere. The story, Kipling's story, Mandalay, doesn't come through. And in fact, for whoever is the mind behind these stories, right? She repeated the line as if it seemed to the bachelor as though someone had a bet with her, right? The bachelor is he, the bachelor isn't remembering the Kipling correctly either. So Saki is telling us that, you know, the ant wants to teach morals. The story may not work. Kipling wants to talk about a certain kind of romance and it may not work. Storytelling is potentially a very powerful activity, Saki is telling us, in many different contexts, but it also can fail because we can be taken over by following little bits of things that attract our attention, like what if they hadn't, what if she hadn't been um, a good girl? What are those flying fishes? And so on. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's the start that line you quoted is the start of an effect that I I noticed and pointed out to my students when I talked to them about this story, why it's so effective. Um, there's this effect that happens of becoming metatextual within a sentence. So Saki will write a sentence and then put a semicolon and then it'll say, it seemed to the bachelor as though someone had made a bet with her that she could not repeat the line aloud 2,000 times without stopping. Then the next sentence is, whoever it was who had made the wager was likely to lose the bet. This is as almost as if, uh, it seemed to the bachelor, this is, we're looking into the bachelor's mind, and now the next line is, there actually was someone who made the bet. <laughs> uh, later, Just a short time later, the children are momentarily uh, the children's momentarily aroused interest began at once to flicker as the ant's ant story is recapitulated by the bachelor once upon a time there was a little girl named Bertha who was extraordinarily good and then the children momentarily aroused interest began to once to, again to flicker semicolon all stories seemed dreadfully alike no matter who told them <laughs> suddenly we're starting to think of oh, this is a story. We're reading a story. And we're reading the same story we read a minute ago, right? Just a more elaborate version of it, more detailed version. (laughs) The children are not happy with the story, but when they have their questions, just as they question the ant, the answers are hyper-verisimilitude answers for children, right? The children are not very into it. But I want to read part of the story, which I think is just awesome. Just an amazing bit of line here. It says, she did all that she was, to- she was told. She was always truthful. She kept her clothes clean, ate milk puddings as though they were jam tarts, 
learned her lessons perfectly and was polite in her manners. Uh, the line that gets me there is that she ate milk puddings as though they were jam tarts. You know, you give her porridge and she thinks it's sugar. Right? Uh-huh. Um, and then one of the girls says, was she pretty? Not as pretty as any of you, said the bachelor, but then the best line ever. But she was horribly good. <laughs> there was a wave of reaction in favor of the story. The word horrible in connection with goodness was a novelty that commended itself. Right? The story continues on until the questions about the sheep is asked. What did the sheep look like? Or why was there no sheep in the park? Right? And the bachelor has a brilliant answer instead of saying, because he didn't like sheep. <laughs> He says, there were no sheep in the park, said the bachelor, because the prince's mother had once had a dream that her son would either be killed by a sheep or else by a clock falling on him. For that reason, the prince never kept a sheep in the park or a clock in his palace. And then the ants, the next line is, the ant suppressed a gasp of admiration. She wants to admire him, but she doesn't want to admire him. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> It'd be improper to admire his deft handling of this difficult question <laughs> the children approve of the excellence of the story here's a line there was a murmur of approval at the excellence of the prince's decision semicolon so many people would have decided the other way so the murmur of approval part of the sentence is this is the children liking it and then so many people would have decided the other way this is almost as if we are deciding it. Right. This is what grown-ups would have wanted if they That's were going right. to tell a standard story. The, the, there's this final line that's missing that I think is so awesome as well. Bertha walked up and down and enjoyed herself immensely. She's in the park and thought to herself, quote, if I were not so extraordinarily good, I should not have been allowed to come into this beautiful park and enjoy all there is to be seen in it. Then the wolf comes into the park and she says, if I had not been so extraordinarily good, I should have been safe in the town at this moment. <laughs> right. There is no third if she had not been extraordinarily good. But the children are very pleased with the fact that she is so horribly good that she gets what's coming to her. <laughs> I think what the children understand, and maybe they understand it because they don't get to spend time with their mother and father, because mm-hmm. they're foisted off on an aunt who takes them from A to B and they don't care about where they're going and they clearly don't respect the person they're with and the person they're with clearly is not nurturing them. Um, They have recognized that the world is not in fact a place where good is rewarded. It's a place where power rules Mm -hmm. and the wolf shows that. And so from a child's viewpoint, because after all children don't have a lot of power, things end badly. Right? And because they end badly, a story that shows things ending badly is, in fact, more real from mm-hmm. their viewpoint than one in which they end well. So to go back to that um, that passage that you quoted, Jesse, um, they're not as pretty as any of you, said The Bachelor, but mm-hmm. she was horribly good. There was a wave of reaction in favor of the story. The word horrible in connection with goodness was a novelty that commended itself. Because for a child to have a grown-up acknowledge that to be good can be horrible 
is mm-hmm. something that they are not allowed to have heard. It seemed to introduce a ring of truth <laughs> that was absent from the ants' tales of infant life. And I, I, I wanted to reread that to get to that last sentence that I tacked on. It seemed to introduce a ring of truth. And it's true because, in fact, it does show the powerlessness of children that was absent from the ants' tales of infant life. Now, the word infant can be used, can sometimes be used to mean a child in general. And uh, sometimes, for example, uh, the the heir to the throne of Spain is called the Infante. Um, the reason that the heir to the throne of Spain is called the Infante um, is because... Um, Infant means etymologically without speech. And if in modern English language usage you ask, when does someone stop being an infant and become being a baby, become a baby, the time is when they stop just, you know, gurgling and start actually trying to mimic sounds. That's that's really the moment. Infant, no speech. Babies begin to have speech. Uh, just as we switch from baby to toddler, when they begin to become vertical and we stop asking how big they are and ask how tall they are. These are sort of automatic. Infant means without speech. The ant's tales of infant life. It seemed to introduce a ring of truth that was absent from the ant's tales of infant life. The ant's way of telling the story gives no autonomy to the child. The child just has to be good. The bachelor's way of telling the story Bertha tries to exert her own autonomy, but she doesn't get to tell her story. She only tells it to herself. As I look at this, this story, Saki tells a story. Saki has a narrator who tells a story. Saki's narrator tells us about two characters who tell stories. One is the ant who tells a completely homogenized, perfect genre story with no, without the ring of truth. And the bachelor who tells a story which is novel and does have the ring of truth. And then we have one other storyteller, Rudyard Kipling. And the only attempt that any of the children have to tell a story is not being able to get past the wrong first line of some other adult's story. So what role do the children play with all of this one storyteller after another storyteller? What role do the children play? In fact, they are audience. They ask intelligent questions. They tell us the rhythms of language that attract us. And ultimately, the story is not only that is Saki's story is not only telling us that there are many ways to tell what look to be similar stories that have many possible uses and may succeed and may fail, but in all of those, the key role is that of someone trying to get through to an audience. Saki is talking to us about what it means to be a storyteller, a great servant of humanity. I, I, I think that the, the best place to read this story would be on a train, you know, with a bunch of running kids running around and you get so sucked into the story that you just sort of forget for a moment that they're screaming and yelling. That's that's what's so funny about short stories is that they, they are a technology based 
phenomenon, right? A story like this happens because in the 1850s, trains start happening and omnibuses start happening and people having start going to jobs that are away from their homes and going on the bus. They need to fill that 10, 15 minutes of time, that hour of time every day. And books and short stories and magazines start filling the gap. That's what this story is doing on a metatextual level. It's just filling the gap for us, but it does such a great job of it by telling stories about telling stories about telling stories. <laughs> there is always more to say. <laughs>